Hello and welcome to the Let's Be Clear podcast celebrating Pride Month, 50 years of Pride Month in the UK. Lots to celebrate, still lots of challenges to address and lots of learnings to take from our conversation today. I'm absolutely delighted to be joined by my colleague Maria, who is herself a queer practitioner in the DNI space, and by Tony McCaffrey, again, a queer practitioner in the DNI space, both going to share with us some of their life experiences. Also, some practical learnings and some tips for employers who genuinely, authentically want to engage with their LBTQ plus colleagues, both inside of work and outside of work. So I'm really looking forward to an in-depth conversation today. And we're going to we're going to cover some topics you may or may not have covered before. So without further ado, I'd like to invite my guests to introduce themselves, please. So, Tony, if I can start with you, if you'd like to introduce yourself to our audience and explain why you're here today. Uh, Hi, Kate. Hi, everyone. Um, My name is Tony, Tony McCaffrey. Uh, My pronouns are he, him or they, them. And I'm the founder of Diversity Scotland. And as Kate has already said, I'm a, a queer DEI practitioner. I'm really delighted to be joining this podcast today to talk about LGBTQ plus inclusion, um, particularly as it is Pride Month. I'm always happy to be talking about this subject as it's very close to my heart. So thank you. Thanks, Tony. Looking forward to learning more. And Maria? Hi, Kate. Hi, Tony. Thanks for having me. My name is Maria Baggio. I am the learning lead at the Career Company, uh, and I've been working with DNI for the past six or seven years now. I am, as Kate already said, a queer DNI practitioner, so I identify as bisexual and non-binary. My pronouns are she, her, or they, them. And as with Tony, it's, it's a topic that's very, very close to my heart, so I'm always happy to be talking about it and discussing the best ways forward for organizations and our clients, really. Brilliant. Thank you both so much. And what I'd like to do is, is you've generously agreed to share some of your own life experiences to give a greater understanding to our audience and um, who may not have that same level of lived experience or indeed any lived experience. And we can share that with them today from a learning perspective. So, Tony, if I can start with you, I know that there's been some real highs and some real challenges in your journey to date. And perhaps you could share some of those with us. Yes, certainly. Well, I know that we are all ultimately as adults shaped by our upbringing and our life experiences. And certainly, you know, for me, that's been very much the case around some of the experiences I had as a young person, particularly when I started to discover that my um, sexual orientation wasn't heterosexual, wasn't straight. Um, I guess for me, that was a journey that, that started like for many young people in, in your early teens. And for me, at by the age of sort of 13, 14, I, I was really clear that in my mind at that point that I was at least gay, if not bisexual or something else. I guess by the age of 14, I decided it was right to start speaking to my family about uh, my sexual orientation. And so I did that when I was 14. Now, at that particular age, my father was in prison and uh, I wasn't living with my mum. So in terms of uh, being able to to come out to my family, I I did that to one of my sisters who I was close to. And I thought that actually that would be quite a positive experience. Unfortunately, it wasn't a positive experience. And for a whole host of reasons in relation to her and in relation to her then partner for 
religious and cultural reasons. They felt that this was something that they couldn't tolerate. And this resulted in me very quickly and very unexpectedly finding myself uh, homeless at, at 14. So given I was in a situation where I, I was already somewhat estranged from both my parents, with my dad being in prison and my mum being away, dealing with some of our own mental health concerns, at that age, I found myself not only feeling quite vulnerable and isolated, but homeless and having to fend for myself. And this resulted in me rough sleeping in London for the best part of four months. And during that time, uh, when I should have been in school and doing things that, that other teenagers do, I guess what really struck me as I was fending for myself to ensure that I had somewhere safe or at least felt reasonably safe and warm to sleep at night, um, worrying how I was going to feed myself, etc. What really struck me was the, the number of other people who I met at that time who were uh, rough sleeping homeless, who were also from the LGBTQ plus community. And it's something that really stayed with me when I was lucky enough to be able to get myself out of that situation. It really stayed with me for the next few years. And unfortunately, due to various other circumstances, I found myself homeless again in my, my late teens into my early 20s with a period of rough sleeping. And being back in that situation for a second time, I was a bit more prepared for the fact that actually a lot of the people that I was going to meet had had some similar experiences to me who had been rejected or who had been left in a vulnerable position because of their gender identity or because of their sexual orientation. And again, being lucky enough to work my way out of homelessness and can say that I'm happy to have been sheltered and, and have my own home now for a good couple of decades. Youth LGBT homelessness is something that um, has, has very much stayed with me my whole life and, and is a, a cause that I work very hard to support and, and help other people understand and, and ensure that we can do something to eradicate it. Thank you for sharing that, Tony. That's, that's obviously sharing a very challenging and stretching part of your life. But as always with everything you do, you've grown from it, learned from it, shared from it and continue to invest back into it. What'd be interesting to just continue that dialogue is that I understand from our last conversation that this isn't something that's gone away. So listeners might be thinking, yeah, well, that was back in the day, but, you know, things have changed now. But I understand from you that that isn't the case. Is that is that right? Uh, absolutely. In actual fact, there are charities like AKT ACT, which is um, a London-based LGBTQ plus homelessness charity, who do great work to try and support young queer homeless people, but can also help organisations who um, are perhaps looking to fundraise or do some active work through through kind of volunteer days, etc. They, they do some some great work around education. As many as twenty four percent of young sixteen to twenty five homeless people are LGBTQ plus. So when you think about the number of people in the LGBTQ plus population across the country. And you think of the percentage of those who then end up homeless, which is a, an actual staggering statistic. I believe it's something like one in six. That means that the number of rough sleeping homeless people across the UK who are from the LGBTQ plus community is just phenomenal. It's a huge number of people. And I feel like this is a an invisible statistic almost that we are not aware of the results of homophobia, biphobia, transphobia that is seeing 
literally thousands of particularly young people ending up vulnerable and unsafe on the streets as a result of an aspect of their identity. Yeah, it does make also, Tony, it just make me think that, you know, we know that the levels of, of, of disclosure and, and, and being out in the workplace are very, very low. And even when they go up in university or college or whatever, then they go back down when we come into the workplace. And you listen to statistics like that and experiences that people might have had during their lives. You know, you can understand why I'm not going to share until you make it safe for me to do so. So, you know, there is that onus on the employer to create that safe space. And also that statistic of 25 percent, which is so much higher than the statistics of people who are out in the workplace. So, you know, again, yeah. we've we, we just we've got a hidden population of people who are hiding part of their identity in order to survive at work which just feels excruciatingly painful to me for want of a better expression to be honest can we make sure as well in our podcast links for those of you that want to to visit us later that we do have the link to um, act for people who want to get involved in that in that because that sounds to me like something that people might find really interesting to get involved with and we can rally some support there so thank you very much for that tony maria and on to you. You were going to share with us some of your life experience and then we can we can talk about, OK, in the workplace, what do we need to do next? Yes, thanks, Kate. I think first I just wanted to to thank Tony as well and send Tony a big virtual hug. We're not in the same space, unfortunately, but this, yeah, sh- sharing our experiences can um, bring, bring up trauma, can it? My lived experiences are much different from Tony's. I'll bite the fact that I come from a very conservative country. So I come from Brazil originally, but I was raised in a very open-minded family. I knew from a fairly early age as Tony that I was bisexual and polyamory pretty much. I had a lot of clarity about my sexual orientation and, and I'm lucky enough to have a sister who's also bisexual and polyamory. So we had a very supportive network at home going on. My poor parents had to wrap their heads around a lot of things. But I think being a 90s child and, you know, being a teens in the early 2000s definitely helped. There was already a lot of information out there for parents and teens to try and understand themselves, um, even in Brazil. So my experience and I think linking to what Kate was mentioning around people coming out at work. So I got to university, um, I studied business in, in a large university in Brazil, and then I started working as an intern for a large company, a large corporation multinational. And the organization was very conservative. So it was, in a way, it was a first for me because I had a fairly liberal environment in my house and a university as well. But then at work, um, it was completely different. And I had a male partner at the time. So um, I'm going to introduce a a term that we use a lot when we discuss LGBTQ plus lived experiences, which is passing. I was passing as as a heterosexual person all the time because people saw me with my male partner and then then they assumed that I was heterosexual as well. And the consequence in that environment is that I had colleagues um, making homophobic comments and jokes around me because they assumed I wasn't part of the community. And I definitely didn't feel safe to say, uh, you know, call anyone out uh, and no one called anyone out. So it was a very unsafe environment for me until I was lucky enough to be moved to a different area. And then I had a a manager who was extremely supportive. So my manager just gave me some space to, you know, express myself and and discuss what I was going through. At the time, I was going through a 
big gender experiment as well with myself. So I cut my hair very short and I had people coming to me at work and saying that they preferred my hair when it was long. So it was, you know, very, very awkward comments in a way, trying to fit me back into that box that I was trying to get out of. So it was, it was an interesting experience for me to find that conservative environment at work. And I never really managed to come out to my colleagues in, in a wider way at work. So for me, working around um, LGBT inclusion in organizations and allyship, most of all, it's a topic I really like because it's very close to my experience. And I think it really changes people's lives, having an ally and having a space where you feel safe to, to be yourself. Yeah, I, I, you know, I mean, I can only agree. And I hope that all of the learning that we've done at the Clear Company with you and other colleagues has helped us internally and, you know, helped to support our clients as well. And, and one of the things that we talked about is, you know, there's a, is there a generational divide? You know, is it more difficult for people, you know, like myself, I'm nearly 60. So there's lots of new language, there's lots of new terminology. And rightly so, there's lots more conversation and profile and discussion and, and, and everyone being comfortable around that. So be really interested. Um, I know both of you have got some views on this and, and some suggestions as well as to how do we make this not a scary topic? How do we make it not complicated? How do we make it interactive, interesting and safe about just the differences and, and life circumstances that we bring to work and not feeling that we're going to trip up over language? And I, I know both of you have got some really good views on that. So, Tony, if I come to you, perhaps um, you could share your thoughts on that first. Yeah, sure. I think like anything, it comes down to education. I believe that organisations have a responsibility to ensure that they are providing opportunities for people to learn about the entire diverse spectrum of gender identity and sexual orientation beyond those traditional heteronormative or gender normative scenarios in which many generations have have grown through. I think it's also up to individuals to try their best to educate themselves as well. You said something really interesting to me in our last conversation, Kate, about how after the murder of George Floyd, many individuals really took the time to educate themselves around race, racism, white privilege. And I think that we need to see the same thing happening around sexual orientation and gender identity. Individuals need to to do the work to educate themselves. However, I also get that it can be scary, daunting, and incredibly complex. The language and the terminology, the sheer volume of terminology, acronyms and initialisms around, uh, for want of a better term, the queer community can just be totally overwhelming. So I think that as with anything, with an open mind and with the right intent, and a healthy dose of humility that people can navigate their way through by asking questions appropriately or being open to feedback if they make a mistake in their terminology. I think learning around the diversity of the world is very uncomfortable for people and understandably there's a lot of apprehension but we kind of have to live with that level of discomfort until we continue to to learn. And we shouldn't be scared of having a little bit of being outside of our comfort zone, um, provided we don't get defensive when somebody corrects us. And also those who are doing the correcting 
don't do that in an attacking or an aggressive way and that we try to understand the intent of people who are looking to learn. That's really good advice, Tony. And, you know, it's like, I mean, as, as, as all of you know, I work quite a lot in the field of disability and I, and I like to give people permission to get it wrong as long as they're comfortable with being, you know, corrected politely and educated so that we can get it right. But if we have a fear of getting it wrong, we'll never speak or have the conversation. So I think we have to give that, that level of permission that's just about trying to get it right, getting it wrong learning on the way we learn more from our mistakes than our achievements in life don't we I suppose Maria um, we've had this conversation before many times as well so be interested um, in you sharing your thoughts and and reflections on what Tony's just said I agree with everything Tony said but I think um, an extra couple point couple of points maybe I think um, for me it really goes back to so the whole psychological safety and I think in our workshops on the impact of non-inclusive behavior there's always that fine balance between people feeling safe to make mistakes and people feeling safe that their trauma is not not going to be brought up too often or used in any way it can sound like a paradox but I feel like in 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 terms of the LGBTQ plus community there is I think what Tony said about, you know, being humble and admitting that you might not know everything. And we don't as well. Uh, the new generations are coming and they have different ways of expressing themselves. So there is there are many things that are new to us as well who are part of the community. So I think it's just keeping that in mind that, you know, you might refer to someone using a word that they don't actually enjoy. They don't actually identify with and they might just say that and that's OK. I think it's just having that conversation and, and being open to to being called in in a way in that space i think there's a piece around the freedom to experiment so we have a vision in society that our gender and our sexuality are fixed so um we identify as something and we'll identify as that something until we die and the new generations mostly show us that that's not true so you have a rising number of teens that identify as non-binary and that might change with time so you know it's just giving people the room to be unsure about themselves and to try out different things and to not know how to in which box to fit themselves and which which um, letter they want to use to you know represent themselves so I think that freedom is is extremely important I think in my experience as well what helps and I've seen organizations doing that is giving people the opportunity to learn from third parties. So you ha- we have many professional queer speakers in the space. So for example, Tony and myself, uh, and many, many others in different identities and intersections, and bringing a professional speaker in-house to talk about their lived experiences and answer questions takes a bit the weight, weight out of the people who are in the organization. Not everyone will feel comfortable answering questions and sharing their lived experiences, but we as professionals, we have a structure behind us that allows us to do that and answer awkward questions and satisfy people's curiosity in a way, because we know these topics are taboo. You know, many people have never spoken to a bisexual person person or a transgender person or you know even a lesbian or gay person before so there is a lot of things around it especially in global settings so you know bringing in a third party speaker a professional speaker definitely helps introducing that conversation internally and taking a bit away out of everyone else's shoulders people who might not feel that comfortable sharing and everything so yeah I think these are my these are my points around this one Kate. No, that's a really interesting area that you've you've picked on there as well, because we have, you know, like the um, front cover of a of a magazine in various organisations. You have somebody in an organisation who, oh, it's Pride Month. We must get so-and-so out to do a little talk to the leadership again. 
and I think you're right in that we cannot assume that talking about lived experience is something that everybody's comfortable about. They, they might have felt safe and comfortable saying, this is me, this is my identity, and I'm comfortable sharing that now. But that doesn't mean that every time you meet me, I want to talk about it. Or every time you need somebody to talk about it, it needs to be me. And also, there will be times when I can and there will be times when I can't. So, you know, be sensitive and respectful around that. I think that's a really um, important addition to the debate, Maria. And I also think the other addition is there are lots of resources out there. And I think I think it was Tony said when we were chatting before that actually you were struggling with, with, with a particular client who, who, who was very, very new to this discussion and debate and how to get it as simple as possible so that it was it was understandable and, and packageable, if you like, so that they could compute um, in, in bite sized chunks. And I think you mentioned using some school resources and using resources that were built for, 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 for young kids to, to understand. Yes, yeah, so I, I'm not sure, I can't speak for all the nations of the, the UK, but certainly in Scotland, it's part of the national curriculum, which is known in Scotland as Curriculum for Excellence, that LGBTQ plus considerations are woven into the general teaching. So not just education around LGBTQ plus topics, but actually in maths problems using scenarios of, you know, two dads when they're using scenarios using neutral pronouns that kind of thing it's just woven in naturally into the whole curriculum and part of that is as a result of work that a charity called time for inclusive education has done in, in terms of building those curriculum resources and many of those resources are available to be downloaded for free straight from their website time for inclusive education and and, and some of the the simplistic but very well designed resources that are there can actually be used in, in other settings and not just in, in, in educational settings. That's a really good tip for people. It's just, you know, so we've got a couple of things here, really. One is that we do need to create that safe environment. We don't need to do that on our own. There are experts out there, including two that I'm speaking to today. There are many resources out there, and we've, we've mentioned a few, and we'll mention some more, and I'm sure we'll add some on as well to the resources that go up with the podcast when you can find it on, on our social media platforms. But one of the things I was just thinking about there is that, so let's say there's an organisation who who is really genuinely wanting to be authentic around LGBTQ plus inclusion and thinks, I know what would be great is let's set up a, a colleague network. So how do we do that in an organisation safely when we may be in a current situation where people don't want to share necessarily their identity, but do want to connect with other people? So I'd be really interested to hear both your views on the the safe way to do that proactively while we're on that journey before we can say, hey, we're ready, you know, let's do something openly. What 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 are the steps we could take to, to get to get us to there? Maria, what are your thoughts? I feel like Tony had a lot more experience than I do in this area, but what I've seen done in the past in reading resources around as well is that just by opening the network to allies, so having a network where you have self-declared LGBT plus people and allies, if, if you are in such a embryonic environment, uh, you might have people who identify as LGBTQ plus internally or, or you know, uh, in their houses and they'll join as allies. So they'll participate in the discussion, they will meet other people but they don't have to self-identify. So this is this is one strategy that I've seen being done. But yeah, I'm super keen to hear from Tony because I feel like he has more experience than I do. Well, I love that straight away. I think that's a great guidance straight away, Maria. Thank you for sharing that. Tony, to add to that. 
Yeah, um, uh, thanks, Kate. Thanks, Maria. Um, I, I mean, I'm, I'm working with an organisation just now who are in the early stages of setting up a, a colleague network group for LGBTQ plus employees. And even within that group, the, the the chair of the group is is mindful that there's some reticence, some reservation around people disclosing why they want to be part of that group and it's not clear how they connect with it. Are they an ally? Are they a member of the LGBTQ plus community? And I think that ultimately we absolutely can't and shouldn't force people to disclose aspects of their identity. But I, I think the fact that that group is up and running and it's growing is a great example of the fact that you can set up a group, you can encourage people to join, you can invite them, you can hold the door open for them and they'll disclose their involvement um, as they see fit, as they uh, as they find appropriate. The fact that they would want to be involved in any way, either publicly or even behind the scenes, is something that you know we should wholeheartedly encourage. Not everybody is going to want to visibly demonstrate aspects of their LGBTQ plus identity in the workplace but they might still want to benefit from greater inclusion and greater sense of belonging, but it's a journey for people. So, you know, we we should encourage allies, we should encourage um, accomplices even, and we should certainly encourage those people who are comfortable around contributing visibly and vocally to the group to, to do so. But we mustn't forget that some people might, for their own reasons, not be ready to wave that pride flag or or as I did at the beginning of this call before we started recording go I'm here I'm queer um you know it, it's not everybody is in that place just yet so supportive open groups that are open to all whether it's allies whether it are people whether it's people who are in the closet or whether it's those out and proud queer people are so important that group could be what allows somebody to find their voice or could be what allows someone the confidence to come out at a time that's right for them. Thank you so much, both of you, for that. It's just, um, I'm reflecting on what I've heard in terms of from an organisation's perspective and the responsibility that we have to create that safe space. And and so there's a number of things that, that you've shared during the course of today. And, and, and the most, obviously, the most um, poignant is is lived experience. And and the fact that you know, you cannot impose your lived experience on somebody else. You know, you can't just assume that you understand it. So we have to self-educate. We have to listen to stories. We have to explore those case studies and those role models who who are you know queer and here and want to talk about it and and, and learn from that. Because I learn so much every time I talk to both of you, obviously individually and collectively. So I think that's one of the things is, you know, let's get out there and let's learn self-educate. There's, there's lots of resources out there. So let's put some safe resources on our website and, and out with our communications that our audience can share with. And if anybody wants to add to that, you know, please do let us know. And the second thing is that I really relate to this idea of allyship being a safe space to join into something and participate and, and learn and gain confidence without having to, talk about your own personal identity, you know, because, you know, not everybody does on any level, whether it's about your broader identity, whether it's about, you know, for me with my disability, not using my white stick, you know, we all have aspects of our life that we, we don't particularly want to share. And we, we might not just want to share them with certain audiences either, because it's a kind of, you know, we have a kind of power, don't we, if we can keep stuff to ourselves with certain people. And I think that that's cool as well. We've also talked about some educative resources. We've talked about not being afraid by the language the complexity of it, the fact that it's always changing, 
and giving ourselves permission to get it wrong, but giving ourselves permission and openness to to be put right um, in, in, a, in a nice way. And not to judge. I mean, as I say in many of the podcasts, to judge is to discriminate on any level, in my view. So we don't judge people for not getting it right. And we don't judge people for not being on the page. Um, our job is to try and get them there. So I thank you both very much for your contributions today. And I'd like to just ask you both if there's anything you'd like to leave this podcast with on that note, on top of everything else that we've achieved in a remarkably short period of time before we close. So I'll come to you first, Tony. What would you like to leave the audience with? I, I, I guess my go-to is always reminding folk of, and I wouldn't, I would get the quote exactly right, but what Audre Lorde said about, you know, we don't live single issue lives because we don't have single identities. I know that's not the right quote, but I think you get my meaning. And and the, the key to that really being that the intersectional considerations that are there for people from the queer community as a queer multi-ethnic person of colour with disabilities, with neurodivergence, I, I'm seeing this from a whole host of different angles and I think it's important that we remember that multi-layered element that you know a gay man is not necessarily just a gay man and the same as a straight woman is not necessarily just a straight woman that's not the single identity that we have and we need to remember those intersections that can create multiple obstacles and multiple barriers for people but yeah just just bear that in mind please. I think that's 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 a great shout as well intersectionality you know we're not just one dimension one day and another dimension of us comes to work the next day the whole of us comes every day if we're lucky so Maria what would your lasting notes be for this podcast? So my lasting notes are well there are many many pride parades going on around the world now in June July August so if you live in a place where there is a pride parade coming and you feel safe to join I would definitely recommend that you do. Most of them are family friendly and there are incredible celebrations. It's an opportunity to celebrate human diversity, human plurality, the beauty that comes in it and comes from it. And um, to see clothes by people with all different sorts of sexual orientations and gender identities and gender expressions and body configurations. So yeah, that will definitely be my recommendation. Great. I'll second that. Having I went to the, the Manchester Pride just before the the first lockdown, well, the year before lockdown, and uh, had the best day of my life apart from my wedding day. So, um, <laughs> oh, and obviously giving birth. Gosh, I'm getting myself into sticky water now. Anyway, <laughs> uh, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Go to the Pride events. They're you know they're everywhere and they're fun and they're they're great. And of course, as I learned this morning in our team meeting, the biggest one ever was in São Paulo. So you know, well done, Brazil. Thank you both very much for joining me today. I'm looking forward to um, some feedback from our audience and meeting you again soon. Thank you and goodbye. Thank you. Bye-bye.